Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Two thousand nineteen, and it is December seventeenth of that year. And welcome again to the Muni Lowdown. And we have a special year-end podcast today. So hold on tight, and here we go. We're going to discuss the DebtWire Muni's top five of two thousand nineteen. We've got five interesting stories. We've got Kyle Yonker discussing Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E's bankruptcy filing. Kaylin Devitt, who's got two stories talks about opioid litigation and the Nuveen Preston Hollow lawsuit. Ava Lorenz gives us the, the tumultuous year in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico's bankruptcy situation. And Kathy O'Donnell focuses on the long-awaited opening of the American Dream retail and entertainment complex in New Jersey. So Kyle, welcome to the show. Thank you. All right, let's start with the big story of the year, Pacific Gas and Electric, the California utility, we'll just say PG&E for short. So they've been in bankruptcy for pretty much the whole year at this point, and now the battle between the company's shareholders and the bondholders has captured a lot of headlines. Are we near the end of it? Uh, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I, would say, I would say it appears we're in the eighth or ninth inning uh, of the game, and there might still be some extra innings. Um, but... We've had some pretty major developments just in the in the past few days, and this week uh, it's possible that um, some of these issues could be resolved uh, here before the end of the year. So, PG&E filed for bankruptcy in January of this year, citing 30 billion in liabilities from wildfires. Um, its utility infrastructure in, in California ignited or allegedly ignited. Um, and what we've seen so far has been a pretty stark lesson in freefall bankruptcy scenarios with an unruly number of constituents all jockeying for leverage. And you've seen some of these different swings and momentum reflected in the PG&E share price. If you look at a, a chart of PG&E share price, it's gone from around seven dollars when they filed for bankruptcy back up to twenty-four dollars. Right. Back down. Back down to three dollars when the Kincaid fire started um, about two months ago, and now it's back up in like the the ten, eleven dollar range. So, the one of the two major themes that has been playing out this year has been this bondholder versus shareholder battle. Um, it's still going on. It might be in its last throes. Um, and the other one, which I'll get to later, is the, the California legislative process, along with the role of um, Governor Gavin Newsom and some of the, the levers of power that he controls. Um, so the company and shareholders, because pg and is a solvent debtor, spent the first couple of months of the bankruptcy replacing the board and installing a new CEO. Uh, they were gradually making progress in the bankruptcy and on a shareholder-backed plan. Suddenly, an ad hoc group of bondholders comes in. Um, they're led by PIMCO and Elliott Management. They say, actually, this is taking too long. Time is of the essence, given the backdrop of the risk of further catastrophic fires. We've got a better plan with more money for victims, better governance proposals. Uh, importantly, the ad hoc group of bondholders struck a settlement deal with the official committee of tort claimants, um, which represents wildfire victims in the case. 
and largely based on that settlement, the bondholders and tort claimants were able to convince a judge to overturn PG&E's exclusive right to file and solicit votes for a bankruptcy plan, um, and instead created this um, competing plan scenario where both sides could put forward a plan and sort of sent the process into upheaval uh, for a little while. Um, in recent months or in recent weeks, PG&E in response uh, went out and courted the tort claimants committee and struck a similar deal with the same, with the exact same economic value of 13.5 billion for the tort claimants and apparently has has won back control in the case at least for now. So Kyle, you were mentioning earlier before about the California legislative process. So you noted that with the governor Gavin Newsom and the legislators. They were our second major theme in the case. How how's their role? How have they played it into it? Yeah, so they have been involved. California Governor Gavin Newsom and and California legislators have been involved from day one. This also sort of provides a more forward-looking angle into the case. Following the the bankruptcy filing in January, Governor Newsom set in motion this sweeping process for the state to re-examine their wildfire liability rules in the wake of these devastating wildfires and what we now know about climate conditions in California and how they're conducive to these catastrophic fires. And he put together teams of experts to conduct these public studies and then those studies funneled into legislators and their ultimate response was AB 1054, which is a wildfire fund set as essentially an insurance fund for catastrophic wildfires for California's utilities, PG&E, along with San Diego Gas and Electric and Southern California Edison. Through this legislation, partly through this legislation, Governor Newsom uh, still has power to block access to, uh, to the fund, uh, which is a powerful negotiating tool. And uh, he, as governor, still appoints the members of the um, California Public Utilities Commission, so he has some oversight power. As this battle with sh- with shareholders uh, between shareholders and bondholders is taking place, Governor Newsom has sort of been in the background saying, "Hey, you know, I like this or I don't like this." And throughout the fall, he sort of has been expressing opposition to some things that have come up in these plans. And after the shareholders and PG&E reached their settlement with the, the tort claimants just recently, Governor Newsom f- filed papers on Friday and then last night with the uh, bankruptcy court saying, hey, I don't, I don't agree with this plan. Um, uh, my opposition is not new. You haven't been listening to me. My main goal all along has been to transform PG&E and ensure in this new environment uh, that Californians have access to safe, reliable, and affordable power. He's essentially coming in and saying, like, hey, we've got to go back to the drawing board. We've got to do we've got to, you know, make sure that uh, we're achieving uh, these these things that I've been saying all along, AB 1054. It was supposed to have provided the, the company with the tools to resolve the Chapter 11 cases, but only if it could meet these goals. And they're talking about real, durable, and transformational changes to the governance and operation of the utility. He filed these papers, and then... Uh, you know, made a statement, and the ad hoc group of bondholders, who we thought had been vanquished, 
is now pouncing uh, on this opportunity to say, hey, I told you so, uh, you need to go with our plan, uh, leaves the company better capitalized, has better governance requirements, and so on. So that was that is happening as we speak uh, this week. Um, there's there, there's going to be some hearings uh, today in the bankruptcy court. Today was a deadline for governor um, the, the the company and um, tort claimants to sort of put together something that Governor Newsom could accept. There's a lot still up in the air. It seems like we're getting to to the end, but it's not really clear. And uh, we still have the the June 30th deadline. Right. Uh, for AB 1054, which is the which is the the, the deadline for PG&E to emerge from bankruptcy in order to participate in that fund. Wow. Well, it sounds like the way it's going, like you said, June 30th is the deadline. That in 2020, this might be also the top serve of the year. But That's Kyle, right. thank you very much for your work, and I appreciate your time today. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Let's move on to Caitlin Devitt. How are you, Caitlin? Hi, how are you? All right. So let's get to it. You've got two uh, stories in the top five this week. And let's, and I'm sorry, this year. <laughs> so let's go to the first one. So we've pretty much gotten pretty far into the opioid crisis in America. And it's been established that the makers, distributors, and other companies involved in the crisis need to shell out lots of dollars to governments to help handle it. What were the big developments this year? Well, it was a pretty big year for the um, opioid crisis. We saw a lot of litigation that was continuing, and we also saw a handful of settlements, as well as the first major bankruptcy. So those were all pretty big developments. As most people know, with even a cursory understanding of it, it's a super tangled and complicated litigation landscape. There's over 3,000 lawsuits that have been brought by local governments and states. They've been filed in state court. They've been filed in federal court. And the goal is sort of a national settlement, but the problem is everyone is fighting over jurisdiction and money. For our market, we're particularly sort of interested in the fact that local governments and states are they're fighting. Um, most of our listeners might remember Big Tobacco and the settlement with Big right. Tobacco and how locals felt like they were aced out. Mm-hmm. So they want to get in on it this time. So they're they filed their own lawsuits and they want to get a piece of the pie without having the state control the states control. And of course, the states want to control. So just to look a little bit closer at the major developments, there's a federal case in Ohio that's consolidated about 2,600 lawsuits that were brought by locals, and that was consolidated into one multi-district litigation. There was a bellwether trial set for October with... um, led by Summit and Cuyahoga counties in Ohio, and that that they were kind of the leaders of that, um, the consolidated case. That bellwether trial, which is being overseen by federal judge Dan Polster, there was a midnight settlement, literally like, you know, midnight before the trial was supposed to start, that was reached by those two counties with four uh, opioid distributors and manufacturers. You know, broadly, the settlement calls for the four companies to pay about $260 million to Cuyahoga and Summit counties. So that avoided that bellwether trial, which everybody's kind of been keeping an eye on. Polster has been pushing hard for that for a settlement. He wants a settlement that will serve as sort of a template for the other litigation because it's just so tangled and 
potentially costly and time-consuming to go to trial with all these claims. So they did reach a settlement, so that kind of bodes well, but of course it doesn't, you know, affect the other local governments. They're just going to try to um, kind of work on that template. The pollsters separately scheduled the second bellwether trial for next year, looking ahead at October 2020 with those two counties, Cuyahoga and Summit, with the pharmaceutical companies. So that's like Walgreens and CVS and Rite Aid. So unless they reach an agreement with that, which is, again, the goal, they're going to go to um, trial next year. So the interesting thing about that case, and we talked about this before, Young, is that it formed this massive negotiating cap class. Mm that included every local government in the U.S. So more than 30,000 local governments are, are part of the negotiating class in that. And the deadline to opt out of that class was in November, and most 98% did not opt out, so they're part of the class, but more than 500 did, including some big ones. So that might make it more difficult to reach a deal. We'll have to see because, you know, the defendants, of course, aren't going to want to settle and then still face have exposure from the other locals that opted out. So um, Cuyahoga County is expected to set up a separate fund for the settlement that's going to avoid the county being able to use that for anything but opioid-related purposes. That's something else in the muni market we're going to kind of watch because with the settlement and with past, well, I mean, with tobacco and past settlements, they've always used that for general fund. So this time around, they're saying we're going to actually use it for opioid-related costs. And all right, so that's that. And then, meanwhile, a group of states announced they've reached a tentative deal with a bunch of, with about five opioid manufacturing companies. That's for $48 billion, and that's a 10-year deal. Uh, it would require other states and locals to buy in, and so far, a lot of the states and other locals are not buying in on that, so we're going to have to kind of wait to see if that's going to be the big settlement that everybody's waiting for or if it's going to fall apart. So that'll be something that we'll look for. And then, of course, the big thing that happened it also is Purdue filed for Chapter 11 right, right. in September. Mm-hmm. So, that yeah, that was in um, the Southern District of New York. That result, That's their attempt, that company's attempt to resolve about 2,600 lawsuits. So we, Debtwire follows that pretty closely. There's a preliminary injunction that runs through April. There's all these different claimants and different committees. Hospitals are part of it. I mean, hospitals alone, their claims are like 300 billion Mm -hmm. in the case. So that's a big case. And they have a preliminary settlement that would have the company providing about 10 billion to the governments. About half of the states have agreed to it. Um, The other half haven't, the locals haven't. So again, it's like everybody's just kind of hammering it out. Right. So then, Kayla, what's the ultimate goal and what do do we expect in the next, in 2020? I think the ultimate goal is some sort of, you know, big, even global settlement. And we're going to, in 2020, they're going to continue that push for it. I mean, this is a really messy process. And, but that is sort of the ultimate goal. And the federal judge, Polster, who's got a lot of power and influence here, he's really, you know, as I said, pushing all parties to try to come to that sort of agreement. And so I think that that's what we're going to see in 2020, sort of continuing to hack through all this different litigation and reach some sort of resolution, some sort of global, I mean, some sort of 
um, templates for settlement that between um, that will include the states and the local governments. And the the pharmaceutical companies are watching Purdue that bankruptcy to see if you know that might provide them a path to resolve all the lawsuits they face. So that's something that as Purdue moves through its bankruptcy, and again there's that injunction through the spring of 2020, we'll see um, we might see some other pharmaceutical companies going that path okay now for our listeners since we cover the muni market what kind of impact does it have for them in the muni market the interesting thing we've been thinking about and writing about is opioid bonds so i think that depending on the the structure and the shape of any settlements that of any settlement money that comes to the governments if those are structured annually as annual payments we might see the governments moving to securitize those payments and issue bonds backed by the backed by the um securitization you know we saw that of course with the tobacco the, the states did that with the tobacco so there's a lot of tobacco bonds out right now one of the biggest you know, chunks of the high yield market. So we'll see that possibly, but again, that's going to be, that would have to, you'd have to get the settlement then, you know, it'd have to be structured in a way that they would, that that would be conducive to securitizing it. But that's something that'll be interesting. We'll, we'll watch that. And then at this point, you know, rating agencies have started to weigh in just a little tiny bit that they don't expect the settlement money to have that big of a impact on credit. Um, the bonds will be interesting, and it also be interesting to see, as I mentioned earlier, what governments are going to use it for, if they use it to patch over general fund deficits, like we might, I'm just, you know, maybe imagining Chicago might do something like that, whereas Ohio, you know, the, gov- the counties in Ohio, as I said, they're already talking about setting up a special fund. And the Ohio Attorney General, Dave Yost, has talked about he wants a constitutional amendment in March um, on the March ballot that would set up a special fund that all settlement money that comes to the state would be used only for those purposes. So that's something else that I think analysts and investors will be interested in to see what that money might end up being used for. All right. Very interesting. Well, Kaylin, thank you so much for the work on the opioid situation. Thank you. All right. So let's move on to the third most viewed story on Deadwire Municipalist. We're, we'll go, we're going down to sunny San Juan, Puerto Rico. Eva Lorenz, how are you down there? I'm fine. I'm glad to be uh, talking to everybody up there. Yes, and again, New York. and thank you very mm-hmm. much. And uh, you, you joined us this year in 2019. So welcome to the team. Thank you. All right. I'm glad. So let's, let's go right into Puerto Rico. So ever since uh, Puerto Rico filed for bankruptcy in 2017, it's been a major, major topic of discussion in the municipal markets, obviously. Tell us about, as you can, and briefly, uh, the important highlights of the bankruptcy in 2019. Well, uh, 2019 was the year in which uh, many advancements were made in the goal of trying to get Puerto Rico out of bankruptcy. For instance, in February, Judge um, Lyra Taylor Swain approved a restructuring with the, uh, deal that wipes out about one third of of the Allen set or $18 billion in sales tax bond debt. Uh, shortly after, the plan of adjustment became effective, and COFINA, as the Puerto Rico Sales uh, Tax Ins- uh, Corporation is known, issued about $12 billion of restructured uh, sales tax revenue. 
former Governor Ricardo Rosselló appointed uh, new members to the board of directors of COFINA. However, there have been challenges to that debt restructuring deal. There are currently two lawsuits challenging the deal. The first was brought by seven labor unions and a single retail bondholder, and the second was brought by three retail bondholders. And they argue that a non-consenting bondholders um, the rights of non-consenting bondholders uh, were violated. Also this year, specifically in May, there was an agreement, a restructuring support agreement reached for the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, and that specific deal calls for the exchange of uh, current bonds for two types of bonds. and. Um, uh, the earlier, of, of course, earlier this year, two uh, two of the bond, uh, insurance companies that secure prepa bonds also joined the deal. That agreement has uh, numerous detractors and numerous supporters. Uh, among the detractors are the Unsecured Creditors Committee and, of course, prepa's unions. And one of the biggest problems with this deal is that it, re it calls for a transition charge that will be used to pay the bonds. And of course, uh, this transition charge will be collected from customers, and that means that there will be a rate hike for Puerto Rican residents. And that is pretty much the point of contention in this deal, because at least the local government and opponents do not want any more rate hikes. Uh, Puerto Rico has a very high uh, electricity rates. Also this year, as this was going on in September, specifically the Financial Oversight and Management Board announced a plan of adjustment to restructure $35 billion in debt against the uh, Commonwealth of Puerto Rico and the Public Buildings Authority, and as well as uh, $50 billion in pension liabilities. Now, this uh, debt adjustment plan reduces the Commonwealth debt by 60% or to about 12 billion. And of course, combined with the COFINA uh, debt deal that was reached earlier this year, this plan will reduce uh, the Commonwealth debt to just under 9%. Of course, uh, the Public Buildings Authority filed for bankruptcy when this debt adjustment plan uh, was filed. So that, so we also have a new um, a bankruptcy case. The adjustment plan for the central government, however, is slated to change because uh, just about two weeks, uh, last week, Judge Lara Taylor Swain uh, allowed litigation that seeks to invalidate about $8 billion in general obligation debt and in public buildings authority bonds uh, to go forward. So that is probably going to change uh, the debt restructuring deal reached by, uh, on the central government. Uh, another important highlight that took place in 2019 was that the Supreme Court of the United States agreed to hear a complaint from Aurelius Capital Management that seeks to uh, invalidate the Financial Oversight and Management Board because their members were not appointed according to the Appointments Clause, which means that they were not, uh, they did not get Senate confirmation. The court heard arguments on that case in October. 
Aurelius at the time argued that uh, the financial oversight board members look, lack authority to guide Puerto Rico towards financial stability. The board itself contends that it does not need to be appointed using the appointments clause because the members are territorial officers and not federal officers. Of course, we expect a ruling sometime very soon on this case. We yet have to see whether the Supreme Court will accept two lawsuits that were filed by um, AMBAC Assurance Corporation, Assure Guarantee, and National Public Finance on rulings that municipalities are not required to make payments on debt secured by special revenues while bankruptcy proceedings are ongoing. Earlier this year, the U.S. First Circuit Court of Appeals held that Section 305 of PROMESA barred a debt adjustment court from enforcing the federal statutory regime a government debt adjustment against the Commonwealth debtor municipalities. And the Boston Court panel held that, that continued payment of special revenues um, was not required under PROMESA. That uh, wreak havoc in the municipal market, so we yet have to see whether the Supreme Court uh, will decide to take up these cases. Very interesting. It's been a very busy year. So let's yes. then let's look forward to 2020. What can we expect in the new year? Well, I expect the Supreme Court to find that the Oversight Board is constitutional and to uphold its actions. I don't think the, based on what happened in October when this, uh, the Supreme Court heard arguments, I don't think the Supreme Court is inclined to invalidate uh, the debt restructuring of, of Puerto Rico. Um, I don't expect the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston to overturn the Cofina deal. Uh, mainly because this this deal was reached upon by a majority of the Cofina bondholders. Uh, these bonds are trading more or less well, and the arguments made by the opponents to the effect that they were not allowed to participate in the negotiations or that they uh, get very, uh, very little payment uh, back uh, from what they invested, I don't think that's those are going to be our strong enough arguments for the appeals court to overturn the COFINA deal. Regarding the restructure plan from PREPA, well, this was later to be heard in January, but now the government wants that hearing on the restructuring plan for the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority to be postponed. Uh, the judge has to rule on that, so we might see another postponement. And of course, uh, regarding the central government debt adjustment plan, as I said previously, that is that plan is probably going to be overhauled in its entirety, and it's certainly we're not going to see in the near future um, a debt adjustment plan for the central government because of the fact that Judge Laura Taylor Swain is allowing a litigation to invalidate some of the debt to move forward, and that is going to take some time. So I don't see in early in 2020 uh, the uh, restructuring of the central government's debt. Okay, Eva. Well, that's a lot of moving parts and a very busy commonwealth down there. So thank yes. you again for your time, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Yes, thank you very much. This is the fourth most viewed story this year on DebtWire Municipals. And we're bringing back Kaylin Devitt. Welcome again, Kaylin. Thanks. Happy to be here. <laughs> okay. So we've been closely following the lawsuit brought by Preston Howell against Nuveen for most of the year. Give us a little bit of a background. 
Preston Hollow Capital is a five-year-old firm based in Dallas. They're pretty small, and they they buy high-yield munis. They often work with the issuer directly to purchase all of the issuer's, um, you know, high-yield uh, paper. They, in late March, early, uh, I'm sorry, late February, early March, sued Nuveen, which most of us are aware of, mutual fund giant based in Chicago, the biggest buyer of muni bonds out there. Preston sued Nuveen, accusing the accusing Nuveen of trying to block the block Preston from the market by threatening to withdraw its, withdraw its business from any bank or broker dealer that did any business with Preston. So basically they were saying, you know, Naveen is waging this campaign of intimidation, trying to get us out of the market because, because we uh, represent too much competition to them. They're weaponizing their market influence as often the biggest customers for most of the broker dealers. Um, they're weaponizing their market influence and using it to get us out of the market. So they brought four claims in Delaware Chancery Court. They filed that, as I said, in late February. There was a trial in late July. There was a post-trial hearing in September. And there's been all these juicy filings, including what Preston relied on for the bulk of its argument, which is these hundreds of pages of telephone transcripts between Nuveen and various market participants, broker-dealers and bankers, in, with Nuveen talking about Preston and how Nuveen says they're implementing a new policy where anybody does business with Preston um, is now going to be put, quote-unquote, in the box by Nuveen. So that's sort of um, that's sort of the background of the case. So what's the latest? I think I heard some major developments this weekend. What can we expect in the new year? Yes, major developments there. Nuveen had filed in in November. They'd filed a motion asking the judge, his last name is Glasscock, to reopen the record so they could introduce new evidence. They said they had evidence that Preston had bought an issue by Roosevelt University in Chicago, and Nuveen said it had new evidence that Preston had not treated Roosevelt well, I guess, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. and, you know, because they marked up the bonds afterwards so that they were, that was proving Nuveen's case that, in fact, what Preston does isn't good for the market. In any case, so the the judge on Friday held a conference call with the attorneys, and he ruled against that. He said, no, he's not going to let Nuveen reopen the evidence, the record, but also he talked about the fact that he hasn't ruled yet and how he's going to probably rule, because everybody's been waiting, he mm-hmm. said, in right. September that he was going to rule right away. So we've all been waiting. And basically what he said in this conference call that we reported on yesterday is he's going to rule he's going to rule against Nuveen. He's going to probably find that Nuveen has engaged in torturous interference with a biz, with a business relationship and that he has waited so long because he doesn't quite know how to remedy the situation. He doesn't know how to impose it without sparking all these new court entanglements. So he asked the the two parties, the attorneys for the two for Preston and Nuveen, to try to mediate a solution. He basically wants them to he pressed them to do this before they tried. They said they couldn't, so they couldn't. So they were waiting for a ruling. Now he's hoping that his new urgency and the fact that he signaled how he intends to rule uh, will give you know a new motivator to these to the different parties to 
come up with their own remedy and to mediate a solution that works for the market because he just said it's going to be too difficult to sort of remedy this situation even when he rules against Nuveen. So like you said, Caitlin, I have just one last question. So he has he hasn't officially given a ruling, but like you said, he is leaning in favor of Preston Hollow. So with this, how does it how does this impact the market overall? Well, that's going to be a good question. We'll have to wait and see. So they he gave the parties until the twenty until Christmas Eve to figure out uh, to say we'll get back to him and say whether or not they think that they will be able to mediate or won't be able to mediate and and what they think of the parameters of a settlement might be or parameters of the mediation might be. So then you know we're gonna have to wait at least several weeks into early 2020 before we kind of find out what what a settlement might look like, what the terms might look like, what the ruling might look like. So in terms of the technical impact on the market, it's kind of early to say. I mean, certainly everybody's been watching it very closely, partly because it gives us a glimpse into just how competitive this the high-yield muni market is and a fight for paper, and also how important relationships are how important clout is and market influence. So these are all things that are very key to the market. We've all been watching it closely. And I think, if anything, people are going to have a sense of maybe what lines they shouldn't cross. You know, it's but we, we're in a self-regulated market. Regulation's very convoluted and sort of opaque. And so this kind of provides a little bit more direction of what could be behavior, these, this relationship-driven behavior that might be frowned upon. So we'll have to wait and see kind of what the specific impact on the market. But again, you know, this sort of um, the doggy-dog mentality might be tamped down a little bit. Well, that's a good way of saying it, doggy dog mentality. But, Caitlin, thank you very much for your work, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Thank you. All right, and finally, to the fifth most viewed story on DebtWire Municipals, we go straight to Harrisburg, PA. Kathy O'Donnell, how are you doing out there? I'm doing well, Young. How are you? Okay. So, Kathy, 2019 saw a day many people, and myself included, that would never come, the opening of the American Dream Retail and Entertainment Complex, or at least parts of it. Tell us all about it. (laughs) That's right, Young. And uh, to quote the great American philosophers, the Grateful Dead, uh, what a long, (laughs) strange trip it's been. (laughs) (laughs) There certainly have been a lot of twists and turns since the project's Xanadu days, and it's a 2003-2004 era. And then, uh, of course, the shaky start of its June 2017 $1.1 billion uh, bond sale, Mm -hmm. which was initially delayed amid uh, what some market sources at the time said was slow demand. But its chapter one opened on October 25th, Yay. and that included its Nickelodeon Universe theme park and an ice rink. Um, the DreamWorks water park, which had been expected to open on November 27th, that hasn't opened yet. And the last I checked, a number of the water park rides had yet to undergo uh, a state engineering review. Um, but Big Snow did open on uh, December 5th with Lindsay Vaughn, and that was a schedule. And that is expected to see about 500,000 visits per year with packages starting at about $49.99 plus tax. So it has opened. Wow. Yeah. And, and 
and I'm, I, don't, I don't know if listeners have uh, recalled, but I do live in the area, so I might check it out uh, this Christmas season. So I will let everyone know how that goes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's go to 2020. I know parts have opened, but some parts have not. What are we looking for in the new year for the American dream? Well, the so-called retail portion uh, is expected to open in March, and investors will be watching to see what kind of traffic that draws and whether it will be a destination, uh, for instance, that will attract luxury shoppers from New York, say, and then international travelers. Um, because the how well the stores do is tied, you know, to the to the. Uh, sales tax, right. um, you know, the grant revenue bond. So that, that's something people are really going to be watching. Um, another thing to keep an eye on is a tax appeal, which the developer Emory LLC has filed against the borough of East Rutherford. And while that appeal isn't expected to, you know, impact the payment in lieu of taxes that the borough of East Rutherford gets, even though East Rutherford is named, were Amarine to be successful, and that's, you know, not clear at this point at all, it could potentially impact what is available for the debt service portion of the pilot share. Uh, so that would be important to the pilot bondholders, potentially. Again, this is something that you know, remains to be seen. And the next conference call in that case isn't until June. And the sources I spoke with regarding that said that's likely aimed at encouraging the parties to come to a settlement. Well, that's in June. And by that time, hopefully, everything should be completed at the American Dream. All the retail, mm-hmm. everything should be done. So that should be an interesting time. Should be. Okay. Kathy, thank you very much for your work this year and uh, hope you have a good holiday. You're very welcome. You too, Young. All right. Take care, Kathy. So thank you to our participants in our year-end podcast. you got Kyle Yonker, Caitlin Devitt, Eva Lorenz, and Kathy O'Donnell. Uh, thanks to our producer, Anthony Phillips. And to you, especially our listeners, hope you guys had a great 2019. Happy and healthy to everybody in 2020. And we'll see you again real soon. Thanks for listening to the Mini Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.